Hi, friends. Welcome to the Voluntold Podcast, where our mission is to spread hope, help, and healing to veterans, their community, our country, and the world. I'm Julia Jones, your host, and I invite you to join us. Pull up a chair and grab your coffee as we chat with veterans who use their military skills to serve others and find help, hope, and healing through volunteering. Hi, today we are talking with my dear friend, Susie Grossman, a change maker, an action taker, a Navy veteran, a volunteer, an inspiring comedian. Thanks for joining us today, Susie. Well, thanks for having me, Julia. Glad to be here. I really look forward to hearing all about your vibrant career and your recent venture into comedy. Well, <laughs> hopefully uh, we'll have some good laughs along the way. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. You've never disappointed me thus far. <laughs> cool. Well, let's start talking about um, why you joined the Navy. Well, I had, uh, after I graduated high school, I had a great opportunity to be an exchange student for a year through the through Rotary International. So my first year I spent in Norway, and prior to doing that, I had made plans to go to college and study psychology, but that whole year in Norway really changed me. I got to travel. I got the travel bug, or what I like to call itchy feet, and when I came back from Norway, I even had a little... Uh, trouble trying to adjust being back in the States and I had been doing a lot of thinking and I thought that what I would like to do was to become a nurse and join the Peace Corps. So I started working a couple of jobs to save some money for school and uh, make some new plans. But it was the mid-80s, it was upstate New York, the economy was not that great, it was cold and dark in the middle of winter, and I just started to feel like if I didn't really do something, um, and I think too I had the itchy feet that were saying, you know, you've been here long enough, it's time to go somewhere else. So I stopped in to see the Navy recruiter, and uh, apparently he was really good, because by the, between the first time I talked to him and the time I left for boot camp was only five weeks. Wow. That probably is like the quickest uh, debt period I've ever heard of. <laughs> was probably, I probably knew he needed to get me before I changed my mind. So <laughs> it's like, let's get her in. <laughs> so did you join, um, did you have a rating or a job when you joined or did you join as a non-rate? Well, I came in as an airman apprentice and it's kind of a uh, roundabout story. I, Obviously, my first question, my first request was to be a hospital corpsman since I was thinking of becoming a nurse, but that was a highly sought-after uh, rating in the Navy, and the, there was a wait list of about a year. And I also knew I was very good with languages, so I was looking at the CT community for as far as linguists. And um, again, there were, uh, back in that day, there were only so many female billets for jobs that would be required at some point to go and on a on a combatant vessel or in a combat area so there were only so many female positions and again that would be a long wait and I think it was right around that time when Reagan had fired all of the air traffic controllers so I figured well there's a job with a lot of potential so how about air traffic controller and they 
they didn't have anything then either, but they said, well, we'll get you into the Airman Apprentice Program. And so you'll have some extra training after boot camp, and then you can try to get into the air traffic controller or maybe another um, aviation rating. And by that point, I was just, okay, let's do that because I was ready to go. So I left for boot camp as an airman recruit. But in boot camp, uh, you know, a lot of things change. Not everybody makes it through boot camp or they don't make it through on time, on schedule for whatever job they had come in for. So there's always some new availability. So I was fortunate enough to be reclassified as a cryptologist, uh, a CTR, which was signals intercept or signals intelligence rather, and my signal is Morse code. So I spent about six months learning Morse code in Pensacola, Florida. And um, but I'm also a little bit musical, so I guess I have an ear for rhythms and beats, and it seemed to go pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you how was that difficult? Because to me, I don't. That's not language is not something I would gravitate to. So was that, that must have been pretty easy for you to pick up. Yeah, and actually they had a great method of teaching, and uh, um, the uh, equipment that we learned on was, was pretty fascinating. So it really did come rather easily, and I think just having, you know, I've been playing musical instruments since I was about 12, and I think if you're used to listening to rhythm or you have an ear for even, like you say, the rhythm of language, it uh, it came pretty quickly. Um, I actually did, uh, when I was in, still in A school in Pensacola, they have a, an award. It's called the Samuel F. B. Morris Award for um, being, they call copying code is what they call by listening and writing down what you hear, but able, being able to do 30 words a minute, which is pretty fast, um, uh, faster than what they were, you know, uh, sending the signal from the Titanic about the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> and they were pretty desperate, I think. So, so yeah, so I did pick it up um, fairly quickly and, uh, and did that for, um, I spent, after Pensacola, I spent a couple years in Guam, a little over two years in Guam. And then I went to an analyst school in Texas and then headed to Turkey for a year, and then after Turkey to Homestead, Florida, for a little over two years. So I did, uh, yeah, I did pretty much um, listening or an analysis uh, to all those um, signals and uh, what they meant, and uh, it was pretty fascinating, especially doing it in different parts of the world. So you were pretty well traveled in the first um, part of your career in the Navy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and fortunately, you know, being in Guam, um, it, Australia was not that far away. So I got to travel to, well, travel to the Philippines, travel to Australia. While I was in Turkey, I got to take a, um, well, fortunately, they had a, one of those MWR trips uh, coordinated. So we went to Israel for 10 days. Um, Florida, I pretty much just went to the Keys, but <laughs> we're still in it. We won't talk about what's happening. Yeah, I know. <laughs> What happens in the Keys stays in the Keys. Uh, <laughs> so you were um, in Homestead, Florida. Um, yes. How many years had you been in the Navy at that time? Uh, so when I was in Homestead, I had been in see, about five years um, when I got there, and I did re-enlist there. Um, and I was, I think I spent a total of, this was April of 90, almost two years, a little over two years in Homestead. Um, during that time, though, 
it was the um, 90 to 92 is when sort of the whole Soviet Union and that part of the world, Eastern Bloc countries and all that were starting to, that was all falling apart. So a lot of the mission, uh, my the mission that I would be focusing on was sort of dissolving and suddenly my rating was totally overmanned. And uh, we were still suffering the effects of when Reagan wanted to have a 600-ship Navy and they started promoting everybody to bring in a whole bunch of new people. And then a year later, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. And everything came to us. Promotions came to pretty much a screeching halt. And um, and then the rating was overmanned. But I happened to come across uh, an article in an enlisted magazine talking about something called the Medical Enlisted Commissioning Program. And it's a program that would take enlisted. It started out just with corpsmen that were interested in becoming nurses and help them get a nursing degree and a commission in the nurse corps. But they weren't getting enough applicants for the number of nurses that they needed strictly coming from the corpsman community. So they opened it up to all enlisted ratings. And it just timing was, uh, I think, was for me quite perfect because I was going to have to switch from the CTR rating to something else. And, you know, eventually a lot of the, the, the technical CTs became ITs, uh, moving into more of the computer world. So I, I was kind of looking for, for something new and I was accepted for that. So in August of 92, I ended up back home in uh, upstate New York and going to Syracuse University to get my nursing degree through the Navy. Oh, wow. Full circle. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it was a great program. Um, they gave you 36 months to finish your degree. I would get my base pay, um, no uh, housing or uh, food or anything like that, and I would have to pay for school. But still, I had that base pay coming in. So I pretty much, and I had to take in the GI Bill so I could get a little income from that every month. So it was a lot easier for me to get through school um, than just trying to do it uh you know, taking out loans and all that kind of stuff. And it was good. My my mom was still uh, in the area, so I got to spend a couple of years at home with her and with family while getting my degree. And uh, those 36 months of going to school actually counted towards my 20. So it was a really uh, a great opportunity that uh, just, you know, how those, no such thing as a coincidence. It came to my lap right when I needed it. <laughs> that That's awesome. So let's, you know, we'll fast forward a few years. You got your commission as a nurse. Um, when I knew you, uh, or when we met, we were both in recruiting. Yeah. You were my supervisor. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was always, you know, I, I have to apologize too, I guess. <laughs> no, maybe we're even. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, we were... Um, reserve recruiters and uh then reserve recruiting kind of got merged into active recruiting and yeah. your position as my supervisor went away yeah yeah and so what happened yeah. when your position went i know you were almost at the end of your career at that time right right i had done uh working at um, Bethesda Naval Hospital and the old Walter Reed in D.C. Um, I'd worked between 95 and 2000 as a nurse. Um, I <clears throat> My specialty when I was a nurse was oncology, which was very hard. And 
I'd done a couple other types of nursing just as a change, but I was ready to do something a little different. I guess, you know, I guess the itchy feet pertains to almost every area of my life. I must. <laughs> so I, um, uh, but you know, the, the Navy really does not want to let go of its nurses or let them do something different. So I decided to uh, get off of active duty and I went back into a little bit more of um, intelligence types that I was working in force protection and, but I stayed in the reserve, um, as a nurse. And that's where I first met our, uh, other colleague, Heather. Um, she recruited me into the reserve as a nurse. Um, and later, I think I was only, I gosh, maybe seven months I was off of active duty and I saw the advertisement for a recruiter in DC, a full-time hometown recruiter. So I did that <clears throat> And got into recruiting, and re- reserve recruiting was totally awesome. They, as you know, they made that career path for us to be able to retire doing that. And then, uh, just as things happen to change, and we streamline and try to save money, they were going to merge active with reserve recruiting, which was, I'm sure you remember, a little. It was a little different because reserve and active are two different animals and different processes and different types. You know, sometimes we even have different language. We don't even understand each other from between reserve and active. So it right. was, it was a, you know, a challenging time. But the result of that is that the headquarters for recruiting where I was in D.C. was going to be uh, dissolved. And we were, we were, I was showing up to work every day, uh, just waiting until it was time for me to retire. And we were basically there just as a resource for the active folks and other commands who still had questions. We were still transitioning. Um, but it was uh, a very kind of a strange time. And then I saw uh, an opportunity. They um, were looking for someone in recruiting to deploy to Afghanistan in a recruiting capacity to be an advisor to the Afghan National Police Recruiting Command. That and sounds pretty harmless. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, why you know, why not? Just, you know, why not go to the desert <laughs> for, for you know, for a little while? And uh yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt, you know, I'd been in the Navy going on 21 years. I was working, this was in the uh toward the end, I think November of 2005, and I had a retirement date of August 1st, 06. But I'm just trying to think I can't just come to this office and sit here every day and wait for somebody to maybe call with a question for the next 10 months or however long that was going to be. And um, a very capable master chief who could run the command blindfolded. So there was really no need for me to be there. And I saw this as an opportunity. I I felt like, you know, I, I was in the Navy all this time. We're at war. I really don't think I would feel right if I didn't do this and do my part um, for everything you've trained for your whole time in the military. Now, now, now there's the war. So now's the time to step up. So I put my name in the hat and uh, wouldn't you know, I was the only hat in the ring. (laughs) (laughs) So lucky me, I I got, uh, I got selected and um, I uh, probably, um i uh went um i think it was yeah it was november december they selected me and then i left in april to go to fort jackson south carolina for two weeks of training which is really all you need when you're going into combat (laughs) 
And, um, yeah, we, we had a joke about that. We called it because it was the Army training. There was probably 300 Navy people there at the time, two to 300 Navy people that, you know, they were doing everything. Okay, today you're going to learn convoys. Tomorrow you're going to be at the range. The day after that you're going to learn how to throw a hand grenade, and then we're going to do field medicine. And then it was just overwhelming, so we called it the U.S. NARMY. <laughs> and uh, so then two weeks after that, I got to go home for a couple of days, and, and then we left. So you said you were going as an advisor. So it, it sounds yes. to me as like a pretty um, innocuous, safe position. Um, did well, you, like, come into any, I don't want to say dangerous situations, because you are going to Afghanistan, but situations that kind of were totally not expected, um, especially for the position that you were going into? Right. Um, well, at the time, believe it or not, Afghanistan was the safer place to go because Iraq was the one that was really just disintegrating, and it was mm-hmm. just before the surge. Um, and we landed in uh, Bagram, in, the, in which is where everyone pretty much comes in and out of Afghanistan, and we had to we were going to end up taking a convoy to Kabul where Camp Eggers is. And I just assumed we would be in some sort of military vehicle, but no, we were on something to me. I kind of nicknamed it the love bus. It was (laughs) just like a regular bus with all kinds of fringe and designs and velvet seats and everything like that. We had Humvees in front of us and behind us, but we're just in this bus. And if you know, that's the main thing in both of these conflicts has been IEDs. So really, at any time you're out traveling pretty much anywhere, there's a risk. Um, It was, I remember that, still that first day that ride was just very, um, very wide-eyed and, you know, seeing caravans and camel and uh, the Bedouins out in the desert. um, It was just all very, it was a lot to take in. Um, But after a while, you kind of just get used to that. Well, you know, I have to do what I have to do. And hopefully today is not my day. Um, we did have in May of 06, and I don't know if you remember, they called them the Memorial Day riots. There was a convoy that one of the large trucks lost brakes and slid down a hill and ran into some vehicles, civilian vehicles, and uh, a couple of civilians, Afghan civilians were killed. And there were always people waiting for opportunity to start something, you know, take advantage of these kind of situations. So a riot started, and within a couple of hours, the entire city was rioting. You know, things were burning. There were um, gunfights going on throughout the streets. I was trapped at the Ministry of Interior because that's where my I was meeting with my counter, my Afghan counterparts most of the time. So we spent most of the day on the roof. Uh, looking around, um, I ended up working at the police operations center, transmitting information from where I was back to Camp Aggers about what was happening, and uh, it was quite exciting. Fortunately, by the you know probably around midnight, things kind of died down, and I was able to get back to the um, to the base to Camp Aggers. But uh, yeah, you never really knew um, what you were going to come into or. Uh, or drive over for that matter. So um, fortunately, I was uh, fortunate enough to never have anything serious like that happen to me, but we did have many IEDs uh, 
and and suicide bombers too. You know, people that would put uh, underneath their clothing, or a guy dressed uh, with a burqa, you know, and he would have explosives underneath. And so there were we'd had casualties while we were there. Um, I, I I just I was blessed and, and made it through. Well, yes, I would say so. So you just came back from Afghanistan, yeah, and you just left the Navy. That was it. You retired. Yeah, I came back, and uh, of course, the command I left from was gone by the time yeah. I got back. And I had all all this leave uh, saved up, so I pretty much I came back. It took me, I think, a day at the most to check out of the Navy, and I went home to my beautiful retirement home on the Shenandoah River in West Virginia, and. Uh, I, I think the main thing I was just so excited to do was I, I'm so excited that I, I'm going to be able to get up and just go down and walk to a kitchen and get a cup of coffee and sit on the couch and have coffee, like, in pajamas. Like, I don't have to dress up with 75 pounds of gear to go to someplace where the coffee is. And, uh, have a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, just adjust to being able to go outside without having to put all that stuff on and walk around and, and feel like, oh, I can be safe. I don't have to, you know, I can just wear a shirt and shorts and I'm okay. Um, and it was still kind of exciting. You know, you're still sort of in that mindset. But after a couple of months, you know, things, uh, you know, life goes on. And I um, was trying to uh, adjust um, to just being a, a normal person. Um, you know, in that when you're in the military, I think you kind of have this, aura about you or you're in your uniform and you're identified right away as someone in the military you know you wear all your accomplishments on your uniform and your rank and everything else and you feel I I would say you kind of feel like somebody you have an identity um, Mm -hmm. and it's a pretty intense identity I think people in the military I've often said you know if you have a job you work at the doctor's office, at Google, at Home Depot. But when you're in the military, you are in the military. It's 24-7, 365. So retiring for anybody is a big deal. But when you retire from the military, even if you don't deploy, it's a big adjustment because now people are just like looking at you, well, you're just another dude in line or chicken line at the grocery store. You're, you know, who are you? You just, and, and you kind of feel a little lost, I think. Um, you know, you've had important duties, big responsibilities. You're invested in what's going on globally, and now you're just trying to buy a stick of butter and yeah, you're kind of a nobody. You're just an ever, you know, another average Joe or Jane in the store. Um, and uh, it is an adjustment. It definitely is an adjustment. And then if you have deployed, you know, you, I think you have an extra level of suspicion about everything for a while you know you're still doing you know vehicle checks before you get in your car and uh you don't want um a couple of things that really bothered me was uh you know people on the street are either trying to raise money or they're asking for money and if they come up to your vehicle uh because you really couldn't trust people coming up to your vehicle when you're in afghanistan or, or iraq you know you don't know what they're doing what they want or what they're doing um packages garbage bags on the side of the road you're trying to drive around them because you don't know what's in them so it, it does take a while to kind of relax so how what would you label that i mean if we had to put a label on that kind of behavior i would definitely classify that as a form of ptsd uh-huh. um 
because you are so conditioned to think a certain way, which is important. You have those types of precautions or situational awareness is life or death critical when you're in a combat zone. Uh, you have to pay attention to everything. You have to be thinking ahead and, and uh, you know, people just open up a cell phone and point it at your vehicle. You're like, okay, is that a remote for uh, an IED? And so it's hard to like take away that suspicion of being, you know, pe- people start talking on the cell phone looking at you, but you know, you're in like Virginia. So <laughs> it's not the same. And uh, so, yeah, it's a little, it's definitely uh, PTSD and uh, readjusting, um, which depending on how long you were deployed or where you were, or what you went through, you know, is is different for everybody to try to readjust to just being a, a civilian in America. So when you um, so you have a little PTSD, did you have any other uh, difficulties adjusting to retirement and no longer being in the Navy? I did. I did. You know, when we're in the military, we, we have a plan or a path, or at least it's we're focused on some sort of upward trajectory to the next level. And you don't... I think most of us, when we get out of the military, we, we may be having looking for a job or some of us may go to school, but a lot of us, that pathway is not as clearly outlined or identified as it is in the military. So you kind of feel like you're, I say, like, you know, trying to walk through jello or walk through, like you're trying to run away in a dream and you can't move. You're trying to find out what that path is or what's next. And it's difficult. And you've, instead of, I think naturally, uh, instead of saying, well, yeah, this is difficult, some adjustment, things are different, we kind of put it back on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? Why do I feel this way? Why can't I adjust? Why is everybody irritating me? Why, you know, what's going on? And um, I also, uh, I retired um, 31 December 06, and in 2007, my uh, husband at the time had been in the mortgage industry for years and had done very well and wanted to continue in that. So he tried to uh, start his own business and I was going to help him with that, but it was just the wrong time. 2007, obviously, 2008 was not the time to get in that line of work. So as much as we tried to make that work, things were not going well. So in addition to trying to make all those adjustments, I was in something that now, um, you know, and I guess I, I don't mean this in a bragging sense. I just mean it in, you know, this is just how it worked in the Navy. I wasn't used to really failing like that. Right, right, right. And um, it, it was just so, it was kind of foreign. Um, and having so much out of my control because the economy was not in my control and what was going on um so 2007 was was a very difficult year. Um, at the end of the year, I was offered an opportunity through a friend to be uh, to do some contracting at the World Bank, uh, working for her, doing technical writing and, and some presentations and graphics and things like that for her. So I, I kind of picked up a little bit. I, I had a job. I was in D.C. It was kind of exciting, the World Bank. I was learning a lot. Uh, so I started that in January, and then suddenly in June, I had a I experienced sudden onset hearing loss in my left ear, and which 
this is a little public service announcement. If you suddenly wake up or suddenly lose hearing, it's an emergency. You need to see an ENT right away. <laughs> Just so if it happens to anybody, y'all know. I told you. But it was, and I know this because mine was misdiagnosed. And it's a nerve injury. And because it wasn't treated in time, it became permanent. And that hearing loss in the left side, um, you know, if you've ever had a plugged ear from a cold or swimmer's ear or anything like that, you know it's very disorienting. And my balance was off for a while, and then every sound changed, and I couldn't determine where sounds were coming from. And I suddenly felt very unsafe and vulnerable, and that exacerbated my PTSD so much that I ended up having to quit that job. And I didn't even want to leave the house because I just I couldn't hear what people were saying. I felt nervous driving because, I, you know, I couldn't hear cars coming up on my left side. Um, so I, I really got very depressed and ended up staying home and kind of on the couch for, uh, a long time. I wouldn't even say a couple of years and the economy, um, continued to go down. I obviously was not able to work. Um, my husband was trying to work it the best he could, but the industry was entirely gone. So we experienced as many did at the time, um, with that significant change in income that we had to file bankruptcy and we lost our home to foreclosure. Mm. So all of that with everything, you know, everything I was dealing with and that on top of it was enough to make me uh, become, and I'll just say it out, I was very suicidal at the time because I just could not see beyond where I was. You know, I kind of looked at myself, I was, I was very successful up until that point and now and I may have said this to you before I kind of look as my retirement as falling off a cliff mm. it just I was just lost and um, I kind I didn't think I was going to make it out of that I just figured okay I'm out of the Navy this is all that's left of me I have nothing left to offer um, I can't get a job I can't you know I have my retirement but it's enough to you know we're living but um I, I just felt like such a failure that I really uh, was just very um, kind of at my wits end. Um, at that point with the hearing loss, I finally decided, well, okay, well, I guess I do need to apply for VA benefits. And, and that's another thing. When I, I figured I'm retired, I have my retirement income, I have TRICARE, what do I need the VA for? Well, I don't care who you are. <laughs> Go to the VA sign up, get yourself enrolled in the VA, have them evaluate you. You never know um, when that, you know, if you are entitled to any sort of disability that, um, and, and their services. I ended up getting uh, into counseling, into some groups, um, which I desperately needed because by staying home all the time, I isolated myself. And when you isolate yourself, you really lose perspective about what's real and what isn't real. Right, right. You know, and you can make up stories in your head, right? About, oh my gosh, this is what's happening. And you're, you're so off, but you don't have anyone to balance out and tell you that, no, you're, that's not how it is. You know, you have another perspective. So Uh obviously you did something. I mean, you did, you go to the VA, but you're here with us today. What helped you overcome this depression and sense of worthlessness? But from the hearing loss to the time that I actually sort of started to feel 
a little settle, you know, a little bit more normal um, was probably a good three to four years. And mm. the the first thing that I actually ventured out doing, um, going out of the house by myself to go do something with other people in a social environment was I signed up to be a volunteer with Literacy Volunteers. And so in my mind, that's like teaching older adults to read. Is that correct? Yes. Um, for Literacy Volunteers, they help anyone who is 18 or older. And initially, because in my mind, it was just helping people to learn to read and write. And that is all I thought it was. But it was so much more. Um, I found out that they teach not only uh, basic reading and writing, they teach basic math. Um, they help people that are trying to prepare for their citizenship exam to all of those uh, areas, you know, civics <clears throat> and history and all of that. They help those folks prepare for those exams. They teach English for speakers of other languages. They teach um, classes like, you know, basic housekeeping, uh, how to balance a checkbook, how maybe how to learn about how to take out a mortgage or how to buy a car. There are things that maybe a lot of us take for granted uh, or some maybe a parent or an older sibling or someone showed us how to do that or went with us. But for people who don't have those resources, um, literacy was helping with all of this and they were connecting with other organizations to help uh, people once they were improving their skills to get employed. I, I did this, we were living in Winchester, Virginia at the time and historically Winchester had been a very uh, industrial area. <clears throat> there was a big furniture maker there, Henkel Harris, a lot of people worked in that factory. So a lot of folks, some of them had even didn't even finish high school. They went right to work. So now, and that factory was gone and a lot of the industry was gone. They were trying to move into this new employment field, but um, they didn't have the skills. And one of the things that most of them needed was basic computing. So I was asked to help another woman who was teaching these classes, um, introduction to computers, and then teaching things like Word, um, basic Excel, how to write a resume, how to do email, how to set up an email account, um, and some basic word things, you know, insert a table, format a letter. Just, But a lot of these people had never even turned on a computer before. So, so how did your military skills did were they really able to use the skills you learned in the military? Did they yes. translate directly to this volunteer? Absolutely, absolutely. When you're in the military, um, which I'm sure you can uh, attest to, Julia, is that you get trained on something, and not. I mean, you can be very, very junior, but know what you're doing, and then the next even more junior sailor. Uh, or soldier, airman comes along, a Marine, and, and it's your turn to teach them. So you become a trainer. I think in the military, you become a trainer quite early on in your career. Mm-hmm. And then there are always other opportunities to um, <clears throat> to teach other uh, things. I know we had to teach, um, of course, now I'm forgetting. <laughs> all the, uh, but some of the basic things that, um, like, uh, equal or we had oh, sexual harassment training or those types of things, you'd have someone on the command 
engagement team or command environment team. I'm trying to remember the name. But, you know, you'd teach those types of things or you would have to give a briefing about something or have – so you learn, I think, pretty early how to – or even uh, what it was GMT we'd have to go to once a month. Remember general military right. training? It was Ooh, on like yeah. what, yeah, whatever topic. Uh, was this water safety or anything? And they would rotate people in having to do those presentations. So the training, um, I think I had down just from all that time in the military. So to teach people was something I was very comfortable with. And obviously we'd used computers for a very long time. So it was some of the skill I was comfortable with. And uh, I guess I never um, would have realized that there were people uh, as far as, you know, back in 2012, 13, 14, that still had not even ever touched a computer. Mm-hmm. And um, how did helping these people, how did that benefit you? How did you feel? Well, I, I met some really great people, and they were all so – uh, grateful to be there and just very anxious to learn. And when you can help someone, you know, they're struggling with something and you find a way to explain it and then they have that light bulb moment, you feel really good that they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. And you help someone and you feel you're focused on them. You're focused on what you're trying to help them see or help them learn. And when they finally do, they're happy, you're happy, and you've had your mind completely off everything about yourself that's bothering you. You're not even thinking about all the, the worries that normally just spin around in your brain. Um, it's a good feeling, and uh, you're helping these people. And you also it also helps with perspective. I mean, there were a couple of women that were in the class that had um, just gotten out of prison, oh. and so they were trying to rebuild their lives, or people that were homeless, or people with some – significant, um, you know, maybe physical disabilities that were not military related. It just was their situation. So you also realize, you know, I've got it pretty darn good. And I've been pretty blessed. Yes. You were able to work through your depression through this volunteering? Yeah. And and I didn't even think, I didn't even think at the time I realized that that was going to happen. Um, but you just, you have fun in the class and people are laughing and you get to joke around and you get to help people and they're thanking you and just telling you how much they appreciate you, which takes away the feeling of I'm a failure or I'm nothing or that I have no purpose or there's nothing. I'm, there's no reason for me to be here because now maybe I do have a reason to be here. Even if it's something very, very small, there are people that were counting on me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and that and that changes when you have that little, <clears throat> excuse me, that little shift. You know, you might not notice it right away, <clears throat> but as that continues to grow, that feeling of purpose and helpfulness, you want to do it more. And the more you do it, the more it pushes out the negativity. That's that's a great analogy. You know, the more you volunteer and just kind of like pushes away the the negative thoughts. <laughs> It does. It kind of it, it replaces some of those feelings of well, you can't do anything, or doesn't matter that you're you know you're not going to make a difference because you end up making a big difference. For you, it might be a small thing, but for the people you're helping, it's probably bigger than you'll ever know. And so it's lasting. Speaking of making a difference, you're making a difference in a different way these days. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're bringing comedy and laughter and. Uh, you know, we all, 
I think all of us in the military kind of have a, a dark sense of humor. You know, we make fun of a lot of the stupid things that we do. And, um, and the crazy things you have to do and, and the bizarre the, yeah. situations you're in. Yeah. Yes. So tell me about what you're doing now. Well, there's another, you know, there's so many things out there today for veterans. It's um, it's wonderful. It's almost overwhelming to try to find all of these resources. Um, but fortunately, I'm in, I'm live close to D.C., and there's a program that's <clears throat> now currently in the D.C. area and down in the Hampton Roads area, and I know they're looking to expand, but it's called the Armed Services Arts Partnership, or ASAP. And... Uh, it's a nonprofit that uh, is, they have coordinated instructors and classes and programs in the arts to help veterans heal through, depre- you know, with depression or anxiety or PTSD or physical injury or whatever it is that you're dealing with uh, through the arts. And it's open to veterans or uh, veteran family members or veteran caregivers because if you have a significantly uh, disabled veteran family member that you're caring for, that's a big job, and you, you go through everything with that person as they do. But the things that they offer are uh, stand-up comedy, improv comedy, creative writing, storytelling, drawing. I think there's some acting, uh, theater and acting. So it's all trying to uh, help you develop your creative side uh, artistically because, you know, in the military, things are very, I would say, very uh, left brain, very scientific, mathematical, very um, uh, orchestrated uh, by the book. And while we have opportunities to use some of our creativity, it's not at all like totally expressing yourself. Uh, as, so that's, kind as of, you, that's kind of frowned upon. Yeah, yeah. You got to be a team member. You got to look like everybody else. You got to be within standards. So uh, I don't can care be... what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. This is this is how you're going to think. So yeah. read this. This is what you think. So, um, so yeah. So they and I believe they have been. Uh, they started in 2015, and they run a couple uh, sessions a year. I think it's a spring, a summer, and a fall session. And I happened to see this. Um, I believe on Facebook, and I signed up for the stand-up comedy uh, class. So it took a little while to get in because, as you can imagine, there's a, a lot of folks who want to get into this. But I, I did the fall 2019 class in D.C., and it's eight weeks. And at the end of the eight weeks, it's one day a week for about three hours of training, and then you do some work on your own during the week. But we uh, we learned all about stand-up comedy and how to develop uh, a uh, set um, of jokes. And on November 12th, I actually got to make my debut at the DC Improv. Uh, we all did a show. Yeah, I know. I'm like, okay, so now the next time I get here, I have to get here uh, based on my own talent. So that could be <laughs> a long time. <laughs> but uh, it was an amazing experience. And, of course, you're again, you're surrounded by other veterans. And I would say a good number of them are also have struggled or are struggling with the things that you have. Um, and then you meet some family members who give you the other side of that story or caregivers. So you, um, you meet people who are sort of, they understand what it is you're going through and they understand 
this is again just like the the volunteering with literacy allowing your creativeness to flow and without restriction um and to develop that and to make people laugh or to you know enthrall them with a story or write a poem or maybe act in theater is just it takes you away to somewhere else for a little while and you don't feel that stress or that depression or the anxiety because you are in the story or you're listening to the joke or telling the joke or you're uh, acting in an improv. So you're just removed from everything that's bringing you down for that while. And it teaches you, you know, if I can do this anytime I'm starting to feel this way, I can, um, maybe I need to go see a comedy show or maybe I need to work on writing some new jokes or, uh, just call somebody that I know will laugh even if I'm not funny. <laughs> <laughs> You're always funny. <laughs> <laughs> so it was totally great, and I'm actually uh, going to continue to pursue, you know, and fortunately in the D.C. area there are a lot of open mics everywhere, so I can uh, keep um, practicing this, and I've signed up for a few other classes, but um, and all of the instructors for that are volunteers. And they love what they do. And through them, they have helped me. And now there are opportunities that I can get involved with this program that even I could volunteer to help others and just stay oh, engaged amazing. in the arts. Yeah, and it's anything that can remove you from whatever you think is, um, you know, whatever it is that's, that's bringing you down. Well, just so maybe to kind we'll of... see you hosting the Golden Globes here soon. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I, I might just copy and paste for Keep Your Face because I think it was spot on. <laughs> wow. But yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your inspiring and incredible story, Susan. Oh, it was my really... pleasure, Julia. So, Susie, if they if someone wants to um, thinks that they might be interested in um, the literacy volunteer, how could they find out more information about that? Well, usually every uh, city or town or area, no matter how big, um, there is a, a chapter uh, somewhere. So I would say if you look up Literacy Volunteers of America, and it may be lva.org, uh, you, you can just Google it. You'll find the local chapter where you live. I, I can say probably with 99% confidence that there would never be uh, a place you would call and they would say, we don't have room for you or time for you. They are always seeking out people to help either teach classes or one-on-one -on -one with, uh, with folks. So Literacy Volunteers of America, they're all over and they would love to have you. So what about the ASAP program? You said that's a little bit more difficult to get into, but how can people find out information about that program? Yeah, so the website is uh, www.asapasapasap.org. And at the moment, again, it's in the D.C., Northern Virginia, Maryland area, and, or Hampton Roads, Virginia. I know they're looking to expand. And um, that, so if you connect with them to see when their classes are, I think they are actually taking applications right now for spring 2020. Um, just see what the classes they have to offer, see what you might be interested in, give them a call to ask about uh, what the program entails. It's a great, you'll speak with Grace or Val, and they'll uh, tell you everything about it. It's just an awesome program. 
Um, and hopefully they'll get to expand soon. I know they're doing a great job of fundraising to be able to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Susie. Um, I hope to see your name in lights here soon. Uh, me too, and uh, hopefully it won't be on like a uh, a name board as I'm getting booked at the police station. But uh... have you seen on the back of the <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or the post office? Right, yeah. Don't want to be there. You know, it's a bad day when you wake up and you see yourself on a milk carton. <laughs> yeah, I'm here, really. <laughs> You're really. <laughs> well, you've really um, been a great guest, and I thank you again so much. I hope you My... have a wonderful day, and thank you for sharing. Thanks so much, Julia. My pleasure. Till next time. Take care. All righty. Thank you, Voluntold friends, for joining us for Episode 2 with Susie Grossman. We are so glad that we could share her story with you. If you are inspired by what you heard today, leave a comment on our Facebook page. Share this episode with your friends or take action and find a place to volunteer so you can bring hope, help, and healing to your community and your world.